Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts. And before I introduce our next guest, I just want to let everybody know that in upstate New York, we are having a stretch of some very unseasonably hot weather. So I hope wherever you are, you're getting some unseasonably hot weather, but more so you're having a peaceful day, you're having a great day, and you're living a day to fulfill your dreams. Uh, My guest today is a woman by the name of Billy Groom, and Billy and I met, I would say, probably through some very serendipitous um, circumstances. We were brought together by Tony Lynch, who is the founder of the Global Grief Network, and Tony's passion is to bring coaches, in, in, uh, grief workers, individuals who are doing innovative things to help people get through challenges together um, in one, you know, large community and a, a, a community, a family. And Billy and I just happened to start talking. Uh, we started talking about her work with uh, canine cognitive behavioral therapy. And as a former therapist, I I relied a lot on cognitive behavioral therapy, working with individuals with substance users, individuals who experienced depression and schizophrenia, as cognitive behavioral therapy has been proven to be a really outstanding and and empirically proven evidence-based therapy, working with individuals with those types of challenges. Um, So I was fascinated to hear that Billy did work with canine cognitive behavioral therapy. And once I got the podcast rolled out, I said, I got to have her on the show. So uh, I am excited to have her and I'm excited to have her share her expertise, her teachings, her wisdom. So before I introduce Billy, I want to just say a little bit about her. Uh, Billy Groom is the expert on canine cognitive behavioral therapy. She is an animal welfare activist, a social entrepreneur, an innovator, a speaker, author, and a podcast host. Billy is going to be pursuing her Ph.D. in 2023 at Antioch University's School of Leadership and Change. She's been a featured keynote speaker on numerous occasions in numerous venues. She's been featured in Psychology Today magazine and Roku TV. She's also an advisory board member at Canine Innovations Incorporated, um, which is a, a part of the University of Texas at Dallas, Billy was also given an award in 2001 by the Toronto Humane Society for her dedication to animal welfare, and she was recently accepted into the Animal Cognition and Emotions course at the Swedish University of Agricultural Science in their Animal Science PhD department. And she wants you all to know, most importantly, that she is a lover of a good pint of IPA on a patio with her two dogs Pancho Villa and Avalon. So with that, Billy, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am excited to have you here today. Oh, Dave, I'm so happy to be here. This is, as you said at the beginning, this is making my day. It's wonderful. And we, uh, I'm up in normally chilly Canada, but it is warm and beautiful day here. So that was, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, you're welcome. Um, I could have read more, but that probably would have taken the entire podcast to read your list of accolades. So the first question I that we were talking, you know, pre-recording, the first question I was going to ask you is, when do you sleep? I know. I, it's, I, I'm a terrible, you know, at 57 years old, you think I would have mastered the art of that, but I actually am not. Sometimes I get up in the night and that's when I do my best work. And I think you just learn to just keep moving forward and, and keep, we keep doing what strikes you at that moment and at that time. And if sleeping is not it and doing something else is, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm more of a daytime person. I'm up like a, I'm up at like probably quarter to five, five o'clock in the yep. morning. But I can go from five to seven or eight just doing work and doing stuff. Exactly. And you know, I mean, and I think I think the key to aging for me is that we stay actively engaged we, in life. We stay actively engaged with doing different things, trying to find ways to, to leave our impact, to, to leave the tracks that we want to be remembered by. So I, I think, 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, age is just a number. That was something I was taught with by my mother. By the way, if you hear any type of noises, Billy is, has animals in her house. She's got, obviously, Avalon and Pancho Villa. So if you hear a bark, you hear, you know, some noise or a little rustling, that's a part of who she is. So this is not going to be edited out. I want to try to... It, I want to try to interview individuals in their natural environment so that my our listeners get an honest reflection of not only who they are, but where they live and, and, and what's a part of their immediate environment. So, And I, I also just, have a cat, and if this was actually video, the chances of that cat jumping up in front of the video and showing everybody her behind is it happens on a regular basis when I'm working with clients and on Zoom and the cat just jumps up and... There she is, and there they go. They do what they do. Yeah, I remember my late cat, Zoe. She would, when we were doing distance learning in Zoom because of the pandemic, yeah. um, when, I, when I wasn't paying attention or I was doing a class via Zoom, she would jump up on my desk and pose in front of the camera like a little princess. <laughs> and as if to say, Dad, you're not paying attention to me. And my students, one of the things that they mentioned when I told her that she had transitioned uh, last year, one of the things that they had mentioned to me was that one of the things that she goes, you know, Dave or Mr. Roberts, whatever they're comfortable calling me, um, we really missed her Zoom appearances. And that, that, did my, that did my heart good. So um, It does. It makes people relax and it shows the normalcy of who we are and what we're doing and, and life goes on and continues on as it does. Yep. And it does. And, um, I've learned that our pets can teach us a lot about life. Yeah. Um, and a lot about ourselves, probably more so than our fellow humans can teach us. Absolutely. They, they, our pets teach us sometimes more about humanity than humans teach us. So, I credit the um, dogs completely for my for my journey and my success and what I've learned from them. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And though I've been a cat owner for 26 years and a cat lover, I love all animals. Mm-hmm. For my lifestyle and for my wife Sherry lifestyle, um, really what um, you know what more suited us was having a cat because cats can are a little bit more independent. They don't need as much on-hands care or attention. And we just weren't in a position with our lifestyle to, to give that to them. So well, that's cats, responsible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and to, to me, I, I've always believed in being a responsible pet owner. I believe other individuals should be a responsible pet owner. Part of that's knowing your limitations in terms of what pets are going to pets are gonna fit best into your household. So, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I guess... <laughs> We, be, we might as well get down to it, huh? <laughs> oh, you and I could chat forever. It's awesome. Yeah, it. we, we could. We could. Um, and I, I, this will probably be the first of, of, of several appearances you know, that we'll, we'll, be doing, we'll be doing at the Global Grief Network. And certainly this isn't going to be one and done on the podcast. I'm going to have you back. So That's great. But anyway, um, I have some questions. And we'll, let's just get right down to it. So first of all, how long have you been working in the field of, of canine cognitive behavioral therapy? And secondly, what makes dogs so satisfying and fun to work with? Mm, great questions. I've been in animal welfare for over three decades, working with dogs, disadvantaged dogs. I work exclusively with adolescent. So in the dog world, that's six months to two years and then adult dogs and senior dogs. So not puppies. And so I've been working with those dogs for over three decades, but it was later in my career um, around the, just before COVID, maybe a little bit before that, that uh, I realized what I was doing was canine cognitive behavioral therapy and why I did it and why. So my journey developed over, but it's, it started three and a half decades ago. And yeah, working with dogs is amazing. They really are logical. They never lie. (laughs) They appreciate when we recognize their intelligence, not unlike humans, and they each have their own story and their own perception, their own goals, their own motivation. They're their own being. And although... 
you know, when I work with them, I'm, I'm following the guidelines and principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. It adapts to these dogs and they actually taught it to me. They, they taught my, the way I work with dogs. I learned it from working with them. And that's why I love it. As you can see, once you start working this way with them or relating to them this way, you see them just start to, to think and flourish and, and develop. And, and some, some of these dogs with disadvantaged pass, it just brings out who they are and brings out their confidence and their comfort. And, and it's just amazing to watch and to have that bond and to see it grow. They're just an incredible species. Yeah, and really, one of the things I've noticed, I think about any animal, is that how you treat them, it's going to come back. It's going to come back threefold. Um, I remember, I remember just with with one of a rescue cat that I inherited by the name of Nitsky, um, who was also transitioned uh, to Rainbow Bridge. Uh, what um, what happened basically was that uh, when she came in, she was very skittish. She was very shy. So all I did was try to tell her very, very calm voice that you're safe. This is a safe place. And eventually she responded. And I, and I believe animals are very capable of responding to specific cues that we throw them and, and they can make their decisions in terms of how they're going to react based on what they see going on around them, which is why I think um, what you do with canine cognitive behavioral therapy is really fits with that. Um, it it's, does. it's a natural fit. That's interesting because the people that I work with are commonly caring. I mean, that's, that's why they're reaching out to me. They want to do what's best for their dog. And they do have some of, I mean, a lot of them are frustrated and they're at their wits end and they felt like they've tried everything and they want to, to figure out how to help this dog. But they, that, what you're saying there, I would consider more of a mindset. So they do have to have that mindset that these dogs are individuals and that we need to respect their autonomy and their emotions and their feelings and their past. Uh, and what I do is provide actually specific skills to do that. So um, I guess I also act as a motivational coach and, and, you know, I'm there for them, but it is a specific formula with uh, skills and exercises that we work through. So instead of simply saying to people, you need to relax or you need to understand your dog or you need to be compassionate or patient, I actually provide the skills where they see progress and they see their dog changing and they see this happening and then they inherently become more patient and they inherently start understanding their dog better. And so instead of just saying to them that that's good, I provide the skills where that happens. And I think it's important because a lot of times, one of the things I've, I've told my students in, in my classes at Utica University in Pratt is that just because somebody is motivated to change doesn't mean that they have the skills to do that. So somebody can come in and say, I need to change my mindset. I need to change the way I look at the world. I need to quit using substances. I need to feel better about myself. Well, that's great. <laughs> but then again, what skills do we need to provide so we can make that happen? And it isn't just going to happen by osmosis or just by saying it. We have to find out, okay, what do you need from us? What skills do you need from us? What tools do you need from us that can help you make those behavior changes? And without that, you know, it's just it's just verbalization without action. And it's not any fault of the individuals verbalizing the change. It's our responsibility as therapists, as uh, you know, working, um, you know, with it, you know, with with canines or working with animals, any type of animals, to provide those skills to both the animals and the owner. Yes, absolutely, and that is an interesting point where I'm working where, where, with people who have the dog, so it's going through both, and when they see it work with the dog, then they change their mindset. That's exactly it. So I think I think you've probably answered this next question, but I'm just going to rephrase it anyway, ask it anyway, just in case we missed anything. In general, what does canine cognitive behavioral therapy entail, 
And why do you believe it's more effective than standard behavior modification conditioning techniques with canines? Okay, well, for clarification, I don't feel it's better. I feel it's equally needed so that the people that are working with the dog, whether that's trainer, behaviorist, fosters, rescues, pet parents, shelters, shelter staff, trainers, uh, that they they have all these tools in their toolbox to be able to uh, allow them to work with the dog in the manner that best suits that dog at their time in their life. So this gets back to why I work predominantly with adolescent dogs and then as well adults. The way that the brain develops. So as you go through life stages with humans, it's the same with dogs and they change and they advance and their brain develops. So puppies, I do believe conditioning is the best method for puppies. Positive reinforcement, forms of operant conditioning. Now trainers all do it differently and people do it differently. So I'm not going to get into the specifics of that. But I do believe, uh, and it doesn't work, no method works perfectly with, with every dog or with every human. Uh, but then when, when they hit that adolescent stage, uh, neuroscience, brain development, and the guidelines and principles guiding and determining these different methods and methodologies, it, it's proven that conditioning methods can have less effect and be less effective and can even be counterproductive, definitely limiting during that adolescent stage based on the brain development and change in behavior. Now, not with every dog. Some dogs, you can just continue to go through with your uh, operant conditioning, your positive reinforcement, and others, a lot of them, by switching over to CCBT and having this just become a normal advancement, a normal transition would prevent a lot of the common unwanted behaviors in that adolescent stage. They're viewed as unwanted because they're challenging when you stick with conditioning methods, but I don't view them as unwanted. I simply view them as a dog developing as they develop. So if you think of it like your children, you need to advance and change how you parent and you're still your own parents and you still have your own family, you know, dynamics and rules and how you, how you raise your children, but you're going to develop and grow and change as your child does so that you encourage cognitive skills and encourage independent thinking and encourage decision-making, good decision-making. And and they have the brain development to do that and so that you can nurture them and guide them, but allow them to make those decisions. That's CBT. And that doesn't mean that, again, going back to mindset, that trainers who use conditioning methods, they may have that mindset, but their actual method of conditioning is either designed to teach and encourage wanted behavior and discourage unwanted behavior, or then you can have counter conditioning, classical conditioning. So you're changing perception of the stimuli with associative elements and desensitization. So you're still focusing on the behavior and the stimuli, whereas CBT nurtures cognitive development and induces decision-making. So they just come from a different place. And it's just been proven that during that adolescent stage, CBT, CCBT works better with those dogs. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And thanks for thanks for clarifying that, because one of the things I another thought that came into my mind is that sometimes we can take, you know, we can take some you know, different elements of specific theoretical perspectives or interventions and kind of one type of intervention might work better at an earlier stage of development. Another type of intervention is going to work in a better stage of development. So essentially, there may be a place for everything. It's just knowing when to use it. And particularly, whether it's a human, whether it's a dog, their behavior will tell you when something is not working, when we need to to adjust our methods. And that's, you know, I, I, I talk about assessment being ongoing. Um, and that's, and assessment is ongoing because the needs of the people and the animals that we work with are going to change over time. And we need to be able to be responsive and flexible and adjust our methods accordingly. Yeah. And then it becomes very easy. Then it's it's not this difficult stage. And 
then actually I find a lot of my clients will methods that they were trying earlier that had been successful during puppy. If they had their dog from puppy, a lot of my clients adopted their dog at an older age. Um, but what they were trying before that wasn't working then does work as we work through and change, you know, change the perception and, and the bond and the relationship and the, the ability to connect with the dog and to then. It, it, so if you think of it as, as again, as your child growing up, you know, you're going to change and develop and then it flows itself out. Agreed. So let me ask you, is there empirical evidence or scientific evidence to support the effectiveness of CBT with dogs? I know you mentioned it's been proven to work very well with adolescents. Has this that been replicated or is there any type of empirical research that you could you know of that can support the effectiveness of canine cognitive behavioral therapy with dogs? That's a really good question. I get asked that a lot. Well, I have spent an enormous amount of time speaking with psychologists and veterinarians and veterinarians are good because they do understand the dogs. They know a lot about the dog's brain. I've taken courses on neuroscience of the dog's brain and brain development to understand why what I do actually works. I, I had been doing it effectively and successfully, but I truly didn't understand why it was working and why it works specifically with that adolescent adult dog and with certain behaviors, fear, anxiety, aggression, as well as just that challenging adolescent stage where they know right from wrong. They know that they know what they're supposed to do and they just <laughs> flip you the bird or don't want to do it or don't care. They get what people would call ornery or stubborn, challenging. So I knew it was effective, but I didn't know why. So I did go back and study that. I felt it was really important to go back and learn more. So there, to scientifically prove a method, an entire method, I mean, that's not going to be done in a lab with scientific studies. But I do call upon scientific studies a lot. So I research them. So for example, it's been proven that uh, dogs can think cognitively. They have the genetic makeup. And that's part of scientifically proving a method. The subject has to have the genetic makeup in order for it to be effective. And dogs can think cognitively. And there's lots of scientific studies that, for example, they can understand object permanence. They have memory. They, they can decipher different elements and, and right from wrong. And, and they, they, there's, if you, if you take cognitive skills and, and cognition and what that means, it's been proven in labs that they have the ability to, to, to think and process cognitively. The other one is it has to adhere to a scientifically proven method. So I talked to psychologists on that point to and studied CBT and what it is. And you've been very helpful on that as well. You and I have had a lot of discussions and I've read a lot of books, both canine related and human related to understand the principles and the process to ensure that my method is not simply an offshoot of a counter conditioning or operant conditioning or classical conditioning, that it adheres to CBT in the sense of the guidelines from a psychology perspective. So that's that's the second. And then the third is application. And ironically, I did application before those other two. <laughs> so I was applying it simply because people were hiring me. I, I never said I want to be a dog trainer. My goal wasn't to be a dog trainer. My goal was to prevent dogs from being surrendered and euthanized for behavioral reasons, which was happening to an a huge extent in shelters and, and uh, you know, they just for behavioral reasons in that adolescent stage. So I worked with these dogs and, and brought in challenging dogs and difficult dogs and learned how to work with them. And then people hired me and veterinarians referred me in particular rescues referred me so that they didn't have to bring in these dogs. So people would call in a panic. I don't know what to do. I have to give up my dog. So inherently 
I became or one of the hats I wear is a behaviorist and a trainer because people hire me. So the application was with these dogs that I brought in voluntarily. I, I didn't get paid and I didn't do it as as um, what's now called board and train and that sort of thing. In my early years, I brought these dogs right into my home, no kennels, you know, not a large property. I was right in cities and just worked with these dogs as a family pet. So at that point, it was, it, it sort of merged from learning from them to also applying it to the next dog, applying what I know, continuing to grow, but not knowing at that point that it was adhering to CBT. And then as I started to teach it to more people, the, you know, we're going through the decades here, but coming up to the last decade and in particular, the last eight years, I have kept case studies. I have thousands and thousands of videos, have written case studies that are over 50 pages long on individual dogs, what worked, what didn't, why, the process they went through. So application is important. I have about 150 to 200 dogs that I apply it to on a yearly basis, multiplied by the eight years that I've been recording the statistics. Well, you know, if you look at the case study approach, I know one of the limitations is that it only looks at one person or one animal at a time. But if you've you've got numerous case studies that are showing anecdotal data that shows specific similarities and patterns, then you have to ask the question, well, should that be a part of scientific discussion? And if those patterns are being repeated over and over and over again, then yeah, I think it has to be part of that discussion. And I think that's the other way that empirically we can prove that just by the patterns that you've developed through your years of expertise, by the patterns that you can recognize, your knowledge of canine cognitive behavioral therapy, we can do that. You know, we can we can identify that and identify those patterns which says, yeah, this now becomes part of the discussion in the scientific community. It is. Once something becomes a repeated pattern, it it, it needs to be looked at. The other studies or statistics that I have that are interesting is more to do with the pet parent or the foster whoever I'm working with, what they've tried before, whether they've tried, because they get blamed a lot for not trying and just giving up on dogs. Yet statistically, 98% of my clients have hired one to three trainers, including behavioral veterinarians, prior to hiring me, those trainers are very good at what they do. They're certified in their field. They're experts in the method that they use. It's simply the method that didn't work with the dog. And just like with anything else we do, there are certain methods or interventions that aren't going to work with human behavior. And and so a lot of times it's trial and error. You know, and a lot of times we just got to, we just got to keep pushing until we can figure out a connection that, you know, in terms of what motivates behavior change, what motivates a change in mindset, it's different for everybody. Right. Once they see the difference, which is usually somewhere between a couple hours to a couple days, it inherently inspires patience and motivation because they see the difference and they understand the difference. On my podcast, I talk a lot about the difference between the methods. And again, not that one is better than the other or more effective than the other, but why they're different and at certain stages and why one would be more effective at a certain. It's not really defined by behavior. You'll see now a lot trainers are becoming, they specialize themselves in a behavior. I specialize in a method. That method can be applied to any any behavior as long as the dog has the ability to process cognitively. And commonly, the behavior is stemming from those cognitive abilities. So this is kind of a nice segue into the next question I have for you. So what are some of the challenges you've experienced when using canine cognitive behavioral therapy as an intervention. Now, are these challenges inherent to the dog, to their owners, or both? The biggest challenge is the industry. Okay. So people would 
commonly think, oh, everybody in animal welfare and training, but everybody's working together and doing the best for the dog. Nope. It's, you know, there's the, the, the challenges and the <laughs> ego and the business and money and just the same as, you know, status and like-minded and popularity and all that, just as there is many other industries. If you take the health industry and, and incorporating different forms of health into mainstream westernized medicine and accepting, not accepting. So I've spent an enormous amount of time and effort reaching out to organizations that influence uh, trainers and pet parents. Like I said, I have a lot of support from veterinarians. I have a lot of support from rescue orgs and from pet parents and and psychologists. And it really depends on the person. But mainstream dog training is really still battling amongst themselves that positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement. And they're still stuck in conditioning methods that it has grown so strong that they just inherently negate anything that isn't what they do. Instead of saying their websites or when they talk the talk, they may say that they use or incorporate or support all non-aversive effective methods. But essentially, when you break down what these organizations are teaching, what trainers are teaching, it's all conditioning. Their mindset might be, we need to respect autonomy. We need to provide options. And there's a difference between option and decision-making. Um, but, you know, canine enrichment, all this sort of, it's not canine cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's going in the right direction. They're incorporating these mindsets, but they're never going to get there by remaining in conditioning methods because it's not designed to do that. So the industry itself, or that, which is people, you know, industries are people. That's, that's what they're made of. That I would say is the biggest it's not a barrier to me specifically because I am successful and recognized in my field. However, it is a barrier to my goal of saving dogs' lives. And because until shelters or other mainstream organizations that teach and influence trainers and behaviorists acknowledge, learn, share, incorporate. It's, it's a challenge to reach these people. So like I said, it's, it's a bit frustrating for my clients who will always say, why didn't my last trainer or why didn't my veterinarian know this? Because they choose not to. It's not that I'm hiding it or keeping it a secret or shirking the system. They, they just choose not to. You know, as you were talking, and this is one of the things that kind of struck me, and if I'm like out of the, you know, if I'm if, if, if I'm out of the ballpark with this, let me know. But it's like whenever we introduce new strategies, new beliefs, new perspectives, a lot of individuals, I think, may become threatened because they believe that they have to incorporate those new strategies and abandon their old beliefs. Where for me, I think there's room for everything. I think as we, we talked earlier, there's certain situations with an animal where conditioning is going to be more effective. There's going to be others where, with, especially with adolescent dogs, where cognitive behavioral therapy is going to be more effective. Who says we can't make room for any all of that? And put together a package that is individualized to the needs of both the owner and both the, both the animal, both the dog, and that's going to allow the owner to be as a, an effective pet owner and allow that dog to be the best pet that they could possibly be. Spot on. I mean, yeah, there, there's room for all of it. There's room to incorporate and integrate. I think the biggest is they, they what you said, that they perceive it as a threat to their status or position or what they've always supported, what they've always promoted. But really, that is, like with anything else, the way that it's presented. And again, I don't need them to be successful, but... They do have 
the ability and arguably the responsibility to provide those who, whether it's pet parents or whether it's, you know, throughout the system, those who work in the shelter system or the rescue, uh, to provide them with all the options, all their options before euthanizing or surrendering a dog. They should be have the ability to have easy access. And I'm not saying every dog that is exposed to CCBT is going to live, although the statistics are extremely high. But the the idea is that people should have easy access to all their all all the solutions and options so that they don't need to make that decision. And so it is their responsibility when they they choose they they could present it as we're the experts in the field and we're connecting with an expert in this particular and so together we're bringing you more solutions greater ability whereas viewing it as competition or a threat to their status is getting dogs killed well and the other thing ethically as direct service providers in whatever field we're in, or healthcare professionals, ethically, we have to present all the options to an individual so that they can choose what's best for them. To not do that, to me, is irresponsible direct practice, and that's just from my perspective. So, And that's an interesting point, because there are legalities in regulated industries, as well as ethics. Canine behavior is an unregulated industry. So... You will have people that will say to me, well, you just do what you do because you can do it because no one can tell you you can't. Well, I do what I do because it works and people need it and want it and I'm consistently busy with it and, and, and it works. But more so, there's no organization that is obligated or responsible for learning what I do, assessing it, taking it and and getting it out there. Whereas in regulated industries, correct, people can't just go and start applying what they're what they've decided is the better way to do something. Um, you know, one of my clients is a, a a dentist in Germany. I I train virtual all over the world. And many years ago, she created or discovered a way of extracting a tooth. I think it's specifically to do with children or a child's tooth. I know nothing about it truthfully, but she, she brought up this example and, and, you know, she said it's tough in an unregulated industry because there's no one that, that I, there's no one that is responsible or required where she had an avenue to go. I mean, it was time consuming was financially expensive. She had to provide a lot of information, but she didn't have that right to just run around and start extracting. It's illegal to do that. But having said that, she had an avenue to go to. And as she took the the steps to to do that, it it was accepted. And she now speaks all over the world about this method for extracting this tooth. And it's become mainstream dentistry to do so. So it, it it really, I do get that a lot where people say, well, you're just doing what you're doing. Well, great. <laughs> Feel free to send me in a, in a more direct, you know, whereas my journey's yeah. been rather all over the map because the, the industry is not regulated. So that's not necessarily working in my favor. No, no. Especially when you're trying to impose some type of structure and ethics and, you know, boundaries to what you do so that um, what you're doing is ethically and professionally responsible practice. So, but looking back, is there an experience or experiences in your life that gave you additional clarity as to your decision to embrace canine cognitive behavioral therapy as your calling? Yes. And I've, I've spoken, I've leaned to this a little bit in this conversation where I really, it was started out as animal welfare and then developed into this specific methodology, which helped immensely 
in working with with people and being being involved in the industry and and moving away from just one-on-one and working within the industry as a whole and speaking about this method when i was provided with some information that really wrapped my head around what i do but also why and the why was like a like a light bulb moment for me so at the end of 2019 i received a phone call in the middle of the day that i thought was just going to be someone inquiring about training and it was a professional mature sounding man on the other end of the phone and he asked me if my if i was born with the name leslie and if i was born in port credit ontario and yes to both of those i don't hide those uh, but not a lot of people know it and he said that he had found me on linkedin because you know how linkedin sort of sends out you might be interested in this person and that so he is also from that area and I had recently become active on LinkedIn. So that made sense. He name dropped a few people that I know quite well from the area, which put him about 10 years older than myself. And he asked if he could tell me a story. And at this point, I was, you know, go ahead. Why not? Why not? He said when he was 17 and I was seven, He lived very close to me, around the corner. His family was a really good family. They were quite well-known in our community. It was a small town. His dad was a pilot, this type of thing. So he had a family pet. The family pet ran away, which the family pet never does. His name's Flash. It's a very good dog. But for some reason today, he decided to take his dog for, or he decided to take himself for a walk. I guess my parents found him brought him into our house. No internet back then. So it was just word of mouth throughout the community. And he found out, his name's Peter, Peter Gibson. He found out that my parents had his dog. So he came over to my house to get his dog. And he just got along beautifully with my parents. And he sat and talked to them for the longest time. And and they just had a wonderful, and he said he was there. I was there. He sort of saw me, but I wasn't, I was quite shy. I still am, but quite shy. And then he left with his dog, Flash. And the night after that, my parents were killed by a drunk driver. And this had a huge effect on him. He was very honored to have met them, but was very, you know, he's 17. So his brain is developing and functioning and and all that is challenging. Now, a little while later, I was walking through the schoolyard and he was playing pickup football with his friends there. And he didn't come over and say anything to me. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to relate to me or connect with me. Even though he he knew I was that same person, suddenly my disadvantaged background an upbringing or he, he really didn't know how to relate. And again, he's only 17, but this plagued him for many, many years, the whole time. He just felt guilty. He, mind you, I should say he's very accomplished and his expectations of himself are very high, which has served him well. So this, this is the kind of thing that would weigh on a person like Peter. I didn't, I, I don't remember it happening actually, but it, it, made sense to me that people want to help the disadvantaged, whether it's animals or non-human animals or humans, they want to help. And that's what I was finding when my parents were killed. There were people that wanted to help, but they didn't know how. They didn't know how to relate to me. I was left a lot on my own and to my own devices. I think I gravitated to people who understood what was important to me. And that, of course, goes with CBT, Mm -hmm. recognizing what's important to that individual and their mind thought and their their perception and their thought patterns and their experiences. That didn't happen a lot with me. It was either just go on, everything's the same or nothing. And and people were trying, 
you know, if, if people that were caring about me were listening to this, they may be offended. And it's not because they didn't want the best for me. They didn't know how to do it. And for some reason, I took that over to dogs. And that might have been my seven-year-old brain connecting that to Flash. I'm not really sure. I'm sure you, Dave, would have a heyday with this because there's, I'm sure, a lot deeper into this. But when I was told that story, it really made sense to me as to why it's so important to be able to relate to dogs in particular with disadvantaged pasts or, or situations that we might feel are challenging. But once we have the skills to do that and to bring them into our lives and bring them into our homes, I deal a lot with rescued and adopted dogs, although I, I work a lot with dogs that people have had from puppyhood as well without any disadvantage pass. But I think that once I heard that story, it took a long time for me to process it and I'm still processing it. But that along with learning from psychologists in particular, a man who works with, he's a college professor. He works, he teaches on child trauma. He reached out to me, he's the father of a client of mine. He reached out to me and he was the one who really encouraged me to research CBT because he felt that my method adhered to the principles of CBT as opposed to conditioning. Those two being presented to me at around the same time within six months of each other was life-changing. And I think it's typically, it's it's our ability to connect the dots with events that don't appear to be related, but yet they are. Um, and I, I think, I mean, for me, I, I've engaged in what I've engaged in because one, I was drawn to it, but secondly, it was years later when I, I discovered the context in terms of why I was drawn to that. So that's why I asked you that that question specifically, and thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, I want to express my condolences for the loss of your parents and just wow you've you've uh, done well to to overcome those challenges and transcend those challenges and that shows in your work thank you so much um, that means a lot coming from you dave i appreciate that you're welcome and just to wrap up yeah couple couple of things what are uh, what's one thing or two things that the audience can learn from your experiences that may help them become more effective pet owners and or navigate their life challenges of their own. So a couple of quick takeaways, a couple of quick things that you want to leave the audience with. Perfect. As pet parents, I would say research. Research your options, and there's so much out there, but make sure that you question who you're hearing it from and what their motives and goals are, and do they really know? Are they just regurgitating other information? So dive into it and expect. Expect more from the industry. Expect more from your professionals that you're looking to. If, if you're challenged and, and reach out and, and find what works for you. And you're your own person and your own family and your pet's your own pet and you're allowed to have your own ways of doing things and, and, and be comfortable with what you're doing. As far as uh, the, the second part of that, I think don't force your journey. Embrace it. If you're entering into a new phase in your life and your journey and, and, as you very well know, Dave, when, when situations happen and they send us down a different path, especially if unexpected, being able to change our mindset to embrace that and what we can learn and, you know, don't, don't worry about making waves. Don't worry about, don't focus on being, you know, liked by everybody or being like-minded or don't don't focus on that just focus on making a difference and doing what's comfortable for you and if something is sitting right and working with you there's probably something right with it and keep going with it yep empowerment is the key and self-empowerment i think particularly in terms of realizing that we are the masters of our own destiny that we are the orchestrators of our own life of our own path, that we are the composers, the conductors, the actors, the players, everything. You know, we we are are responsible, and we can 
create the co-create the life of our choosing in conjunction with the universe. Finally, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? And what do you have going on that you'd like our audience to know about? Oh, boy. Well, I do have my podcast, which is Dog Training Disrupted by Upward Dogology. I'm also, I also have a podcast called The Solutionist Show on All About Animals Radio, which is a fantastic platform. It has lots of different different animal-related shows. Um, I'm going to be coming out with another book called My Dog Fight, which is somewhat of a memoir. It's It's funny. It's interesting. It's got lots of... <laughs> It's it's an interesting it it is I'm actually doing it a little bit with Jonathan Balcom who is yeah eleven time New York Times bestseller author and he's a he's a fish guy he knows all about fish he's amazing I am on LinkedIn I do a lot of posts if you're interested in what I'm doing on a day to day I would say LinkedIn which is uh, Billy Groom I I I'm trying to do more on Twitter. Facebook is Upward Dogology, which is U-P-W-A-R-D, which stands for Urban People with Adolescent and Rescued Dogs. My uh, website, I have two websites. One's more geared toward my one-on-one training. That's doglogicregina.com. But more for your audience, I would say, if they're just interested in my journey and who I am and CBT and why it's important and speaking engagements. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. I speak at all sorts of different conferences. It's super interesting. And the people I meet are amazing. All of those are on upwarddogology.com. And Linktree is uh, Udogology. And I'll make sure I put all of your contact information, website information in the program notes as well, too, so that people can get in touch with it. But Thank you. Uh, Billy, as always, a pleasure. We could go on for another hour, I'm sure. Um, but it, it's always it's just, it's just been so great. Thank you for taking the time to share your journey, share your wisdom, um, you know, with with our listeners. And I look forward to having you back again in the future. And there's always so much changing and learning and going on with all of us that, yeah, I'd be honored. I might be honored at all. It's always fun. It's your, your questions are stimulating and, and motivating. You are as well. So it's really inspirational. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great. You're, you're, you're welcome, Billy. And um, so I guess with that, that is a wrap. So until next time, this is Dave Roberts for the teaching journeys podcast. I wish you peace.